Well, I'd like to start this morning by asking you a few questions. And I recognize that sometimes when a preacher asks questions, it's like, I don't know, does he want me to respond? Uh, is this a rhetorical question? I'm not sure what to do here. Ah! I want you to respond this morning, okay? Uh, you could shout out the answer. You could just go, yep. You could raise your hand. Whatever is appropriate for you. But please respond to this, okay? This morning... I want to ask you a few questions. Uh, first of all, how many of you would say that time seems to go by too quickly? Okay, good. I think you can do better on this next one. But that was okay. Yeah, I, I agree. I think that time goes by too quickly. How many of you ever find yourself with this thought? It seems like just yesterday when... Something happens. Have you ever had that thought? It seems like just yesterday. Yeah. And then when you start thinking about that, it's like, gosh, that was 20 years ago. You know, it seems like just yesterday that our kids were in diapers. Or it seems like just yesterday that I was in high school playing, playing football. Or it seems like just yesterday when this or that happened. And when you think about it, it's like, wow, that was a long time ago. Um, have you ever wondered, and do you remember back when you were a kid, how many of you had this experience where summer vacation seemed like forever? When you were, particularly in elementary school, I mean, school got out and you didn't have anything to do and you were at home and it's like, after week one, you are bored out of your mind. You have nothing to do. And Summer vacation seemed like forever, you know, to 12, 15 weeks, whatever summer vacation is, and you thought you were going to go out of your mind. How many of you this year are with me, and it's like, where did the summer go? I can't believe we just drafted our fantasy football because football is starting next week. NFL season starts. School's been in session now for a week. It's Labor Day. Unbelievable where time goes. And how many of you would say this? That the older that you get, the faster time seems to go. Would you agree with that? Where pretty soon you're a year older and it's like, wow, what even happened over this last year? You know, I think this is a common experience among everyone that walks the planet. That, that time is fleeting, that life is short. I don't, I don't even think that I have to work really hard this morning to convince you of those two truths, that time is fleeting and that life is short. I think you know that, that that's your experience too. So what I am going to work hard at and what we're going to try to do during this series, what we're working towards is to force you to ask some questions about the trajectory of your life. So if time is short and if it's only getting faster... What is it in these few years that we have left, if God so wishes us to give us a few years? What is it that we're aiming towards? Where are we headed? When, when we get to the end of our lives, what is it that we want people to remember about us? What are the things that are going to live after we are dead and gone from this earth? The things that really matter. And I think this is an important question and even a fundamental one because it's not a, a natural question that we like to wrestle with often. In fact, 
I would imagine that most of you in this room didn't at some point this week say, gosh, you know, I've only got a few years left on this earth. What am I going to do with those years? I think this is something that we learn, and it's something that we have to be challenged in. And a person who will take the time and ask the questions and thoughtfully evaluate the trajectory of their life will only be better for it. Would you agree with that? And so that's what we're hoping to do. We're hoping to put this issue in front of you, put it on your plate, and cause you to have to wrestle with it over the next few weeks. And at the end, I hope that all of us would say, that was well worth my time. That was well worth my time. I feel like I have a direction and a purpose and an aim for my life. Now we have a key verse that's going to guide our discussion. It's kind of an overarching verse, kind of our hope for this series. It's Psalm 90:12, and you saw it in uh, in the video. Uh, does anybody know who wrote Psalm 90? Throw out a guess. That's right. You would think David, or you'd think you know another of the psalmists. But at the beginning of Psalm 90, it tells us that this is a prayer of Moses, the man of God, and so. I don't know if that's interesting to you. To me, that was very interesting. And Psalm 90:12 says this. It says, Teach us to number our days aright that we may gain a heart of wisdom. Now, that's an interesting verse because of the, of the phraseology here. Teach us. I think that's key. And if you're the kind of person that underlines in your Bible, that would be a good phrase to underline. Teach us. Because I think this is something that we need taught. This is something that we need to learn. It's, it's not something that's hardwired into our DNA. We have to be taught this. It's a skill. And so Moses is asking God, Lord, teach us to number our days. Now, the word, you know, that phrase, number our days, that's probably not a term that you heard this week. It's probably not a term you threw out in casual conversation. What does he mean, number our days? When I first hear that term, what it... What it says to me, have you ever filled out one of those um, insurance health forms that says, have you or any of your family members ever had bubonic plague? Yes or no? You know, have you or your family members ever had mesophilioma? You know, yes or no? And then why are they doing that? Well, in essence, they're trying to find out what kind of a risk you are. They're, They're numbering your days. At the end of that, you, you would have this feeling of, yeah, I'm in good health, so I'd probably have 93 and a half years on this planet. I don't think that's what he's talking about, numbering our days. I think when he says, teach us to number our days, I think what he's really saying is, teach us to recognize that our days are numbered. Teach us to recognize that we have a limited time here on this earth. That our days are numbered. And I think through that understanding, through that simple discovery of learning that our days on this earth are numbered, gives us a wisdom, gives us an understanding, and, and a way of approaching life that is valuable, it's beneficial, it's good for all of us. Teach us to number our days so that we may gain this heart of wisdom. And that's what we're shooting for. We're shooting for the wisdom that says, all right, 
My days are limited here. What is it that I'm aiming for in my life? What is the trajectory of my life so that when I get to the end, I will have accomplished all that God wants me to accomplish and done everything that God wants me to do? So that's what we're talking about. Now, there's, a, there's some fundamental concepts that I think will, will um, help us in our discussion. We're using this term of, or this, this, this picture of archery um, to help us in our discussion. And I think it's a good picture, but I don't, I don't, it's not without its flaws. The first fundamental concept is this, that, that we're all in flight. Now, what we're talking about here is we're talking about an arrow, and uh, this one actually doesn't have a knock on it for uh, safety purposes, right? We don't, I'm not going to shoot this, okay? I can't. I wanted to, but I can't. Um, we're all in flight. We're all in flight. We are all living a life, and one thing that we know about um, shooting an arrow is that from the moment it uh, leaves the bow it's slowing down, right? I don't think that that's a good representation of our life because of the phenomena that we've already discussed, that it seems like our life, the longer that we live, we actually speed up. So as you think about the arrow, I want you to think about we are racing towards a target. And make no doubt about it, we're all in flight. We're all headed somewhere, is another way to put this. We're all headed somewhere. We've been launched You had a birth, and you will have a death, unless the Lord Jesus comes before we breathe our last breath. We are all in flight. Now, the second fundamental concept is this, that we all will reach an end. We're all going to reach an end. Just like an arrow cannot remain in flight forever, guess what? You're going to have an end. You will reach an end at some point. Now, when is that going to be? Um, we don't know. And I, th- I think that that's um, a guiding principle that we need to understand in our lives. You know, it, with all of our medical science and all of the advances in um, understanding the human body, people are living longer these days, but you and I are not guaranteed tomorrow, let alone to live to 90 we need to understand that, that we will come to an end. Now, when I, when I talk about um, reaching our end or reaching our target, I'm not just talking about heaven or hell. But sometimes I think we like to overgeneralize and say that, you know, the whole point of us reaching our end is that we will reach heaven and we won't reach hell. And I think that is absolutely fundamental. I think it's foundational. Um, you need to understand that the Bible only talks about two different ends for us, eternal ends. There's, there's heaven and there's hell. And the Bible says that there's only one way to reach heaven, and that's through Jesus Christ. And it says that all who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. And if you haven't gotten that one figured out, it's, it's pointless to try and talk about all of the other things that you're going to do with your life. I think about... What Jesus said in Mark 8.36, he said, What good would it be for someone to gain the whole world, yet forfeit their soul? It's a great question. 
So if you haven't got the heaven-hell thing figured out, you don't need to go any further and try and figure out you know, all of the, the, the details of what you want to accomplish with your life. Because like Jesus said, what good is it if you gain the whole world? Do you accomplish everything that, that would be humanly possible for someone to accomplish, yet you forfeit your soul? None of that would matter. But in this series, we aren't just going to be talking about heaven and hell. In fact, I, I'm just going to assume that I'm talking to a lot of people that have gotten the heaven thing figured out, but what we're really asking is, how do I get to the end where my life mattered? How can I reach my end and have my life mean something? And not just in a not just in an earthly, like, successful, I made some money or I had some fame, but how can my life really matter? Where the things that, that I've done with my life will live on after I'm long gone off of this earth. Don't you think that's a good question that we should ask? So we will all reach an end. Now, um, the end... We're using a target as our, as our illustration of our end. thought that would be less graphic than, you know, like a big deer or something. You know, whatever you're aiming at. But here's the idea, you know, we're aiming, we're, we're going to reach an end. We're going to, we're aimed toward someone or something. What is it that we're going to see in the end? Zig Ziglar, who is a, a motivational speaker, said this, If you aim at nothing... You're going to hit it every time. If you aim at nothing, you're going to hit it every time. So we're all in flight. We're all in flight. And we're all aimed at something. But if you're aimed at nothing, guess what? You don't have anything to worry about because you're going to hit that. You're going to arrive at nothing. So the idea that we're, if we're going to, to reach an end that matters, it's going to take some intentionality on our part. We're going to have to define what our target is so that we can reach it. So during this series, we want to press you to wrestle with putting some definition to your target. Next week, we're going to be talking about your purpose. And more specifically, what is God's purpose for your life? It's really a fundamental question. Why do you exist? And it, it, it's a question that if we don't wrestle with that one, uh, uh, none of the other questions that we're going to ask are going to have any sort of direction. But after we answer that question, or at least have you think about that question, we're going to talk about marriage and family. And ask the question, what is our, our goals? What are we shooting for for our marriage and our family that, that, that will matter? Um, we're going to talk about work and finances. You know, if... Most of us spend um, the majority of our time at work, you know, doing things, working towards something. What are our goals in that area so that we can get to the end of our life and not have any regrets that we spent too much time doing it or that we were focused on the wrong thing, something that didn't matter? And then that, that final week, we're going to talk about relationships. And the reality is that, that God didn't design us to, for our our, our life to be launched and for us to get to our end without any interaction with other people. We're going to look at that, about how God wants to fulfill our lives with these relationships and, and, and how are we aligning ourselves with God's purpose for uh, relationships, friendships, um, 
the, the way that we interact with other people as we are flying through this life. Why today, though? Why today? Why do we bring this up today? Why is this so urgent? Well, it's because of this third fundamental concept, and that is that our flight time is very short. Our flight time is very short. Um, you know, using the illustration of, of the bow and arrow, uh, an arrow leaves a bow going about 300 feet per second. And an archery target, like an Olympic archery, I had to look this up. I knew it was a long way, but I didn't know how far it was. Anybody know how far they shoot in Olympic archery? I didn't know. 70 meters is how far they shoot, which is 229 feet. It's a long ways. I mean, I don't know that... I don't know that I've ever hit a target that far before. Shot quite a few bows and arrows. Now, what is a long shot in, in archery? I don't know of anyone who would even try and take an animal in a hunting situation with a bow and arrow that was 100 yards. That would be a really long shot with a bow and arrow. In fact, most shots, you're going to want 40 yards or closer. But for the sake of our argument here, and the sake of easy figuring, let's say that 100 yards, 300 feet, is a long shot. Like, this would be a maximum distance for, a, for a, your arrow to be in flight. And that arrow is going 300 feet per second. How long is the arrow in flight? One second. One second. So, in our illustration, you know, you're in flight, but it isn't long. You're rapidly approaching a target, and your life is going to be over. Now, this isn't an overdramatic statement. In fact, the Bible agrees with this. Um, Psalm 39, verses 4 and 5, David said it this way. And some would say, well, this is just David being overdramatic. Psalm 39, For No? There's one before that. Okay. Psalm 39 says this. Show me, O Lord, my life's end and the number of my days. Let me know how fleeting is my life. That's how David said it. Unless we think that this was David just being overdramatic, um, James... 4.14, we have that one? James 4.14. Why? You do not even know what will happen tomorrow. What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. You know, these are biblical authors that are agreeing with this idea that our life is brief. Um, in James there, the 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 terminology that he's using is like your breath on a cold day. You're here just as a mist, as a breath, as a vapor, and then you're gone. So when we say, you know, our flight time is short and we talk about it, I want you to think in those terms, I've got this one second life. I'm here today. What is it going to be? What am I aiming towards? What is the end? Our flight time is very short. Can you see the reality of this? Can you see how, how this really changes our perspective and how understanding this really um, is, is fundamental to understanding what our purpose is and what we should be doing with our life here on this earth? 
God knows that you are here. He knows how many days you have and He has a purpose for your life. We read in Psalm 139, verse 16, All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. God has a plan for your life. He knows every day that you're going to be here. And trust me, if you didn't have a purpose, if it wasn't in His will for you to be here, you wouldn't be here. And so God knows this. And He knows uh, His plans for you. All the, the days ordained for you were written in God's book before one of them came to be. So make no doubt about it that there is a God-given meaning for your life. You matter you fit into God's plan. He needs you. Not in the sense that He's going to ex- cease to exist without you, but He needs you in the sense that He has a plan for you. And He wants you to get it, and He wants you to get in the game and to get aligned with His purposes so that in the end you can achieve everything that He wants you to achieve. Now, some of you may be asking, you know, what gives you the right to talk about this? You know, I'm only 33 years old. Some of you are much older than me. I'll say that. One second older than me, that's right. You're one second older than me. Um, what gives you the right to talk about this? You know, you're just a young guy. What, what do you know about the, the, the perspective on the length of your life? Well, I feel like I have a better perspective than a lot of people my age because of some of the circumstances that I've gone through in my life. When, when I was 22... Uh, newly married, I, um, we were in our second year of marriage, my wife and I, and um, my mother-in-law uh, was tragically killed. She, she died at the age of 46. And that was a real wake-up call uh, for me to have to, to go through that and to walk that journey with my wife and with my extended family uh, in the reality where the rubber meets the road of we don't know how long we're going to be here. We don't know if we have 46 years, if we have 26 years, or if we have 96 years. We don't know. And that was a defining moment for me early on because it forced me to wrestle with this. It forced me to deal with it. Just a year later, uh, when I was 23... I found myself in the hospital really, really sick. And um, come to find out, my pancreas had had shut down. And um, I had developed um, type 1 diabetes. And so I wear an insulin pump. Um, You know, most of you may not have known that, and I'm really actually thankful for that. I feel like I'm well-controlled. I feel like I'm healthy. But I'll tell you what, at 22 years of age, that kind of hits a guy pretty hard. Um, even just to statistically, when you put diabetes on your resume, the longevity of your life is significantly shortened. And that's something that, that I had to deal with at age 22. Um, that was a real wrestling process. Still something that I wrestle with from time to time. Of Wow, I've been dealt this this hand of cards, and how am I going to play it? How am I going to play it? It brings perspective. That's what I'm saying. It brings perspective. And many of you will know that uh, at age 31, just a couple years ago, I had a stroke. Do you remember that? 
No, I was in a hospital bed, uh, having just had a full-blown brain damage, you know, big deal stroke, and wondering, questioning whether I would be able to read again, drive again, catch a ball, throw, you know, play catch with my kids, all those kinds of things. And I'll tell you what, it, it brings perspective. And so I don't have the whole thing figured out, but I do know that if if you aren't forced to deal with it, you aren't going to deal with it. And so if we can, what we want to do is try and force you to deal with some of these issues. And say, the urgency is now. Right now, I don't want to live another day aimlessly. I don't want to live another day pointlessly. I want to discover what it is that God wants for my life, and I want to, I want to aim hard for it. So that whenever my time comes, I will have accomplished what God wants me to accomplish. Look at Psalm 90, 12 again. Teach us to number our days aright, or correctly. Teach us to number our days so that we may gain a heart of wisdom. That's what we're hoping for, for all of us. So what's the point? Here it is. Here's the point. Right now is the time to intentionally aim our lives so that when we reach our end, we are exactly where God wants us to be, having done all that God wants us to do. I think there's a little typo in your notes. It should say, all that God wants us to do. All that God wants us to do. Right now is the intentionality. And so over the next few weeks, we're going to we're going to go on a journey together and we're going to be forced to deal with some stuff and hopefully by the end you're going to have some stuff written down on paper and say, saying, you know, this is um, to the best of my ability what I want to accomplish with my life. This is my life's purpose and my aim. And these are some goals that I have for my work and my finances, for my family and for my relationships. And at the end, I hope that we're all the better for it. Now, today, um, as we close here, I just have three things that I want, to, I want to throw out there as guiding principles. So as we go out through this, uh, this next uh, few weeks and we discover these things, here are some boundaries, here are some principles that, that are going to help you to avoid some pitfalls. And we're actually going to look at a couple of stories where some guys really struggled in this area and we're going to learn some lessons from them. The first place I'd like for you to turn is to the book of Ecclesiastes. Uh, if you're in Psalms, turn to the right just a couple of, of uh, chapters uh, through the book of Proverbs. And right after Proverbs, you're going to find Ecclesiastes. We're going to be on page 658 in the handout Bibles that are, that are under the, the chairs. Now, Ecclesiastes, it, uh, literally translated, means teacher. And it's a book written by Solomon, who was the king of Israel. He was also a son of David. And Solomon was the most powerful man on the world, in the world. Um, he had unlimited resources, and he set out on a mission to define the meaning of life, to figure it all out. Now, that's a pretty dangerous combination when you have a guy whose goal is to figure out the meaning of life, and he has unlimited resources and unlimited power. 
He's got the ability to try a few things. And what we're going to see is that Solomon tries a lot of things, and we can learn from his error and his experiment here. It's going to save us from having to try the same things for ourselves. So I'm going to, I'm going to read um, from chapter 1, starting in verse 12. This will not be on the screen. I'm going to read quite a bit, so I'm going to encourage you to follow along in your scripture. Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verse 12. I, the teacher, was king over Israel in Jerusalem, and I devoted myself to study and to explore by wisdom all that is done under heaven. What a heavy burden God has laid on men. I've seen all the things that are done under the sun, and all of them are meaningless, a chasing after the wind. What is twisted cannot be straightened. What is lacking cannot be counted. I thought to myself, look, I've grown and increased in wisdom more than anyone who has ruled over Jerusalem before me. I've experienced much of wisdom and knowledge. Then I applied myself to the understanding of wisdom and also of madness and folly. But I learned that this too is chasing after the wind. For with much wisdom comes much sorrow and more knowledge. The more knowledge, the more grief. I didn't say this was going to be an encouraging passage. I just said it was going to be truthful, right? Chapter 2 starts like this. I thought in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure to find out what is good. But that's, that also provided to be meaningless. Laughter, I said, is foolish. And what does pleasure accomplish? I tried cheering myself with wine and embracing folly, my mind still guiding me with wisdom. I wanted to see what was worthwhile for men to do under heaven during the few days of their lives. I undertook great projects and I built houses for myself and planted vineyards. I made gardens and parks and planted all kinds of fruit trees in them. I made reservoirs to water groves of flourishing trees. I bought male and female slaves and had other slaves who were born in my house. I also owned more herds and flocks than anyone in Jerusalem before me. I amassed silver and gold for myself and the treasures of kings and provinces. I acquired men and women singers and a harem as well, the delights of the heart of men. I became greater by far than anyone in Jerusalem before me. And in all this, my wisdom stayed with me. I denied myself nothing that my eyes desired. I refused my heart no pleasure. My heart took delight in all my work. And this was the reward for all my labor. Yet, when I surveyed all that my hands had done and what I had toiled to achieve, everything was, and you say it, meaningless, a chasing after the wind. Nothing was gained under the sun. Is everybody happy? Ready to leave? Encouraged today? You know? Really, I mean, he, he goes through a pretty long list here, doesn't he? Uh, knowledge, learning, understanding, meaningless, he says. Um, pleasure, laughter, you know, some people pursue that with their lives. It's like whatever will make me happy, whatever um, is pleasurable, I, I'm not going to deny myself anything. And something's like meaningless. It all in the end is meaningless. Um, he tried cheering himself with wine. Some people arrive at that conclusion, don't they? like, well, if I can't find meaning for my life, if my life is pointless, then they, they, they just run to the bottle. And Solomon says that too was meaningless. Uh, he goes on and uh, he did great projects. He um, had all sorts of money. 
all the gold that you could ever fathom. Uh, it, the way he says it is he had the treasure of kings and provinces. And he says he even had a harem. I mean, this guy's living at large, right? But look what he says. I denied myself nothing. Verse 10. I refused my heart no pleasure. But verse 11. When I surveyed all that my hands had done, what I had toiled to achieve, everything was meaningless like chasing after the wind. Man. I wonder what the point of this is. I wonder what Solomon, what his conclusion was. Okay, Solomon, so if all of those things are meaningless and you start flipping through the book of Ecclesiastes, um, he talks about the toil of work and he, he talks about all of these, um, uh, chapter 4, uh, he, he talks about how riches are meaningless. He talks about how wisdom and knowledge um, are meaningless. You can't get enough of those things. It's like chasing after the wind. It talks about how we all have a common destiny and how it doesn't really matter. You know, there, there's sinners and there's, there, there, there's people who aren't sinners and, and they both still have the common end. What's going on? He talks about all sorts of things. And then look at, at, at chapter 12 at the very end of the book. This is on page 667, verse 13. Now all has been heard, and here is the conclusion of the matter. Fear God and keep His commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. Fear God and keep His commandments, this is the whole duty of man. Another way to say it is this, and, and, and this is the point. If we leave God out, we leave out meaning. If we leave God out, we leave out meaning. Everything is meaningless, like chasing after the, the wind. If you leave God out of the picture, if God is not part of the target of your life, your life is pretty well meaningless. Make no mistake about it, people are aiming at money and they're aiming at fame, they're aiming at power. But what do we see happening? Just like Solomon says, when, when they get some of those things, what do they do? They want more. They want more. It's like chasing after the wind. The ultimate end to their flight time is over, and what do they have to show for it? What do they have to show for it? You know, if a person has lots of money, what happens to their money? It just gets divided up among their, their relation, or it gets, you know, donated to some charity or whatever it is. It was meaningless. All this work for that. Uh, what happens to someone who is, you know, chasing after fame? They get to their, the, the end of their life, and, and what happens? Well, you go to Walmart and you buy their CDs for two bucks in the value bin. That's their fame. What happens to the person who achieved great power when they come to the end of their lives? Somebody else is immediately right there ready to step in and to take their power that they had worked so hard to achieve. It's like chasing after the wind. So keep that in mind the next few weeks as we challenge you to put some definition to your target. God is essential and even foundational to our purpose and our meaning here on this life and in the life to come. So let me ask you this. Who do you think is the person in the Bible that, that had the best grasp on God's sovereignty and power? You can't say Jesus. Jesus. 
Who's the person in the Bible that had the best grasp of God's sovereignty and his power? Job, good, good, good idea. Job did have a good understanding of that, but not the best. Somebody else. David, Saul, Paul, Paul Saul, Saul, Joseph, all of those are great ideas, but they're wrong. I think, <laughs> I think the person that had the best grasp of God's sovereignty and his power, Nebuchadnezzar. And here's why. Turn to the book of Daniel, chapter 4. Daniel, chapter 4. Um, it's going to be to the right of where you're at in Ecclesiastes. Daniel, chapter 4. It's on page 878 in the handout Bibles. Now, Nebuchadnezzar was a king and... He's the, the same king that you remember from the story of Daniel and Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego and um, all those Sunday school stories that you may remember from a kid. But I had not remembered this particular caveat in the grand story of Daniel because it really is like interrupting part of the story and it gives us this little snapshot into King Nebuchadnezzar's life. I want to read you the story and this is a fantastic story. Daniel chapter 4, verse 28. All this happened to King Nebuchadnezzar. Twelve months later, as the king was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon, he said, Is not this the great Babylon that I have built as the royal residence by my mighty power and for the glory of my majesty? Wow. God doesn't appreciate statements like this. You know that? Man, this is an arrogant statement. Um, you know, I have built this royal residence by my mighty power and for the glory of my majesty. Verse 31, the words were still on his lips when the voice came from heaven. This is what is decreed for you, King Nebuchadnezzar. Your royal authority has been taken from you and you will be driven away from People and will live with the wild animals and will eat grass like cattle and seven times will pass by for you until you acknowledge that the Most High is sovereign over the kingdoms of men and gives them to anyone he wishes. So immediately, what had been said about Nebuchadnezzar was fulfilled. He was driven away from people and he ate grass like cattle and his body was drenched with the dew of heaven until his hair grew like the feathers of an eagle and his nails like the claws of a bird. And at the end of that time, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes toward heaven and my sanity was restored. And then I praised the Most High and I honored and I glorified Him who lives forever. Listen to how his language changes here. His dominion is an eternal dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the peoples of the earth are regarded as nothing. He does as he pleases with the power, powers of heaven and the peoples of the earth. No one can hold back his hand or say to him, what have you done? At the same time that my sanity was restored, my honor and my splendor were returned to me for the glory of my kingdom. And my advisors and nobles sought me out, and I was restored to my throne and became even greater than before. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and exalt and glorify the King of Heaven, because everything he does is right, and all his ways are just, 
and those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. Is that a great story or what? I want you to recognize the pronouns that change in Nebuchadnezzar's language. At the beginning, um, in verse 30, is not this the great Babylon that I have built by my mighty power for the glory of my majesty? And then look how his pronouns change in verse 34. His dominion is eternal. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. He does as he pleases. No one can hold back his hand. What is the awakening in Nebuchadnezzar's life? God's in control. That my perspective here is it feels like I have accomplished all of these great things. That's what it feels like. Look at my mighty hand and my majesty. I feel like I have done all of this. And God shows him the instant that his heart expresses these things, that everything that he has is only because God allowed it. It's only because God had his hand of favor on Nebuchadnezzar. And as soon as he removed that, what happened? He lost his mind. He lost everything. But the awakening that Nebuchadnezzar comes to, the realization that he comes to, when his pronouns change, and it's not about he, him and his majesty and his kingdom, and it's about God and his power and his authority and his will, what changes? Everything's restored to him, and it says that he was, he was even blessed beyond what he was ever blessed before. I brought this globe um, as an example, an illustration of this, to help us understand this. Because... If you, if you look here, and I don't know if I can hold this up in a way that you could even see it. Can you even see the United States on there? You can, can't you? Okay. Could you point out where Wyoming is at on that? Roughly. I, can, I have the privilege of being a little closer, and so I can actually see they have the, the, the state boundary lines there. But it's roughly about this, the size of my little fingernail right there. Now, if you were to come up here and I was to give you... Um, you know, a tool, and said, you know, could you mark proportionally the size of the city of Lingle? You know, the great city of Lingle, how, how big would it be? Smaller than you could mark. Smaller than you could mark. Now, if I were to, to say, okay, now within that um, blip, micro blip on this great globe, in order to say, you know, find North Hills Baptist Church. How small is that? We're talking about like microscopic level now, aren't we? In order to say, okay, now within the you know hundred people that are sitting in that service, put a mark where you're at. What are we talking? I mean, we're talking about electron microscope now. We're talking about getting way down in here. Now, listen to the foolishness of Nebuchadnezzar and the foolishness of you and I, if we get our perspective wrong, that says, look what I have done. Look at the great city I have built. Look at all of the things that I have done for the glory of my majesty. Is God impressed? Not at all. It's laughable to think about. Now, 
You say, okay, well, how big is God? No, I'm not a good representation of that, nor is this room a good representation of that. Think about the, the biggest thing that you can imagine right now, and that's not a good representation about how high God is above this earth. And I want you to think about this. Here I am. We've, we've already identified that if you, if you try and live life apart from God, that it, it leads to a meaningless existence. Okay? So we're, we're saying, okay, so that means that I need to have God be a part of my plans. And I think this is something that we like to do. It's like sprinkling pepper or salt on, on our plans. and saying, God, you know, I'd like for you to be a part of this. Could you just come be a part of this? You know, I really want your blessing. And I really want, you know, your power. And I really want to, to feel your presence in what I'm doing. Would you come and be a part of my plans? And what I want to say here, and th- th- this point... It, may sound harsh at first, but listen, we shouldn't ask God to be a part of our plans. God has asked us to be a part of his plan. Now, you may be asking, so, so are you saying that God doesn't want to be involved in what I'm doing? No, God wants to be very involved with, with what you're doing. Remember, you're created for a purpose. He knows you. He loves you. Um, he is divinely appointed for you to be here in this place, in this time, to be a part of his grand plan. He has a purpose for you. But he's not interested in just being a part of what you're doing, like, like you know, sprinkle a little pixie dust on my plan so that I can accomplish what I want to do. It's the wrong perspective. The right perspective is for the little blip and the dot of saying, God, this blows my mind. I don't understand this. You are way bigger than I could ever imagine. And the only reason that I'm here, the only reason that I can even think and breathe and be alive is because your hand is causing that to happen, your willingness to happen. So I'm part of this big plan. Lord, how can my tiny one-second blip on the dot life be meaningful in your grand plan? And that's the kind of perspective that Nebuchadnezzar got. It's like, I built all of these things, and it looked like I was doing it, and I was on a plan, and then I was awakened to the reality that anything that I have and any meaning to my life comes from God. It's not that I want God to be a part of my plans. Like, I'm going to do this, God. I want you to be along with me. Come on, let's go. It's awakening to the reality that God has a plan and He wants me to be a part of it and finding, diligently searching for what it is that I can do to be a part of God's plan for this earth. And finally, another way of saying this, and and the final point is this, our plans are driven by our purpose but our purpose is given by God. Our plans are driven by our purpose. Everybody has a purpose. There was a book written by, uh, like that, wasn't there? Right? Everybody has a purpose for what they're doing. Some are, are driven by the purpose of making money. And m- making money is not a bad thing. But if that's your purpose... Solomon would say it this way. He would say, you're living a meaningless existence. You're going to come to the end and you're going to realize that you were just chasing after the wind if your purpose was to make money. But if our purpose comes from God and you are making money as part of His kingdom, you're going to be funding the kingdom of God, then guess what? That's a grand purpose that God has given 
to your life. Your money has meaning. And you can say, I'm going to make the most money that I can. I'm going to live happily in the center of everything that God is willing here because God has a plan for this. I'm funding His work. That brings purpose to what it is that God has gifted you to do. Fame, likewise, is not a bad thing unless fame is your purpose. If, you're, if, if your purpose is, I want to get famous because, hey, I really want to be famous. Then your, your end, your goal, the, the, the end of it is meaningless like chasing after the wind. But if, on the other hand, your purpose comes from God and you are using your, your, your fame as a platform in which you can make His name great, and your platform is so that you can point other people towards the glory of God, then you should be begging God to give you the biggest platform possible so that His name and His glory can be announced to the world. Does that make sense? So our plans are driven by our purpose. And our purpose is given to us by God. And some of you are saying, I have no idea what my purpose is. And consequently, I have no plans for how I'm living my life right now. You know, it's pretty random, as a matter of fact. I don't even know what I'm doing tomorrow, let alone for the rest of my life. I don't know. I haven't thought about that. And that's good, because that's exactly what we want to force you to wrestle with over the next few weeks. But the place for you to start is by discovering God's purpose for your life. And that's really what we're focusing on next week. What is God's purpose for my life. So please don't miss that. I'd also encourage you, as we go through this series, during the, the, the Second Look videos. Second Look is a, a weekly video series that we produce. Um, it's available on DVD out in the stand in the lobby, and it's also available um, that you can stream it from the internet, at home, on your computer, on your iPad, whatever, on your phone. And over the next few weeks, we're going to be looking at the, the story of Nehemiah. And how God gives this man, Nehemiah, a, a divine burden, a divine purpose to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. And over the next few weeks, we're going to look at Nehemiah's journey through that, of finding and discovering God's purpose for his life, and then the steps that he takes to see that God's plan and his will is fulfilled in his life. And that starts this week, and so I'd encourage you to pick up a, a DVD, watch it, uh, go online, watch that, and be a part of this discussion of, you know, how can I discover and carry out God's purpose for my life? I encourage you to, to make it priority, to not miss over the next few weeks as we talk about this. And if you, for some unforeseen reason, have to miss, to, to follow along with the conversation online, you can listen to the sermons there and, and be a part of this. So, Today, as we close our service, we are going to be celebrating communion together. And I think this is a fantastic way to close this particular sermon. Why? Because communion is our way of remembering and being reminded of what Jesus did. And if there was ever an example of a life well-aimed, it was His. Um, Jesus was very clear in what his purpose was. In Luke 19.10, he said, The Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which is lost. His mission, his divine burden, his aim 
was to seek and to save that which was lost. And nothing was going to sway him from that. He, he knew where he was headed and he knew what his mission was and oh, how men tried to short-circuit that mission, but he gladly aimed for the cross and for the redemption of man. And guess what? He hit his target. And he gave his life on that cross as payment, as a ransom for the debt that you and I deserve. That all of us are sinners and Jesus gave his life to rescue us, that all who believe in Him will be saved. And so this morning, we're, we're going to participate in communion. We're going to eat the bread, which represents Jesus' broken body. And we're going to drink the juice, which represents His shed blood on the cross as a reminder that Jesus did this all for us. We're told in Scripture that as often as we do this, as often as we eat this and we drink this, to do it in remembrance of Him. And that's what we're going to do. And so I'm going to invite the ushers to come forward and the worship team is going to come forward and, and they're going to play as we, as we take communion. And the, these things are going to be passed around and I invite you to take that piece of bread and that cup and then at the, just, just hold on to it. And then at the end, we're going to take those together. Now, communion is for those who have trusted Christ as their personal Savior. and um, We practice open communion here, which means you don't have to be a member of North Hills to take communion. We just ask that you have trusted Christ as your personal Savior, and we invite you to share in this with us. So take that bread and that juice, and then just hold on to it, and we'll take it together in just a few moments.